0: I'm fairly certain, like almost no one in your audience has has read this book.
1: I would put money down that no one in my audience picked up Dreams from the Founding Fathers by Ron DeSantis in 2011. I would I would and put please, money down that bet. Yeah.
0: And please don't.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with return guest and my favorite historian, Thomas Zimmer. Thomas is a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, where he teaches 20th century U.S. and international history with a focus on transatlantic history of democracy. He's also the author and the host of Is This Democracy podcast and the creator of the incredible substack newsletter, Democracy Americana. He is currently working on two book projects, A History of Polarization Since the 1960s, and a book entitled White America's Fear of Liberal Democracy. He writes a regular column for The Guardian about the past, present, and possible future of American democracy. And I wanted to have him on today to give us some context about where we are with both the media and the right wing of the country, which sadly has far too much overlap right now. Thomas's insight is always eye-opening, and I get so much out of his work, I want to be sure to share his thoughts with you, my amazing audience. So without further ado, please welcome back my favorite Georgetown professor, author, historian, and host of the Is This Democracy podcast, Thomas Zimmer. Welcome back, Thomas.
0: Always excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me back.
1: Well, thank you for coming. I love how your brain works. And I think your insight, both as a professor and an expert on democracy, but also as a German with enough outside perspective to really see the forest for the trees here is essential to us right now. I mean, you know, I'm an immigrant myself. I didn't grow up in America and I wasn't raised immersed in the American zeitgeist. And so I think I've always seen the country with enough distance to question what other people might take for granted. And that's not to say I didn't buy into the hype when I moved here in the early 2000s, but it didn't take me long to realize that perhaps the country wasn't exactly as it appeared from the outside.
0: I mean, I guess that, you know, there is probably something about the, the mix between a kind of natural distance that comes with not growing up in the States But also at the same time, I moved over here, right? I made the decision to come over here. I moved my family over. So it's not like I get, I get a lot of people who don't like me quite as much will say things like, if you don't like it here, just go Go home. You just hate America. And I'm like, no, I actually just moved my family over here. Right. It's, it's probably, I probably didn't do that because I hated America so much. That would be a very weird decision to make. So it gives you a kind of, I guess, of semi-distance um, to, to to everything, and maybe that helps. It's it's hard to quantify for me. I couldn't tell you exactly, and this is exactly how I arrived at this conclusion. But it definitely shapes my perspective. Yes.
1: Yeah, I always say, you know, I'm really clear that if I'm. Criticizing things, or if I'm talking about how things could be better, that doesn't mean I don't believe America could be exactly what we tell people we are. I think America could be everything we take pride in, you know, this beacon for worldwide democracy, a land of opportunity, a place where anyone from anywhere can make it if they just work hard enough, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, all of that. But I know that we won't get there without work because the system is clearly broken. And in many cases, it's deeply corrupt. And we can't just carry on pretending it's all good. We need to see it for what it is and then work from there. And real change is what we need, like brave moves. So acting like the status quo is okay only serves those who would take us back. And if we want to survive, I always feel like we have to move forward or we die
0: i mean if those are the options how about mm-hmm. how about we try moving forward
1: evolution um. my friend <laughs> evolution now i understand that recently while preparing for some events and discussions you sadly had to spend a lot of time reading Ron DeSantis' books, and I'm yes. sorry about that. And despite the fact that DeSantis's presidential hopes are currently crashing and burning because he is a terrible leader and a terrible person and, quite frankly, a god-awful candidate, I think Ron is still probably the best indicator of where the Republican Party would be fine with going if they had the chance. As I see it, Trump is still an aberration. He is most likely the nominee for the Republican Party in 2024, but I still think that the big donors and the right-wing movers and shakers would ultimately not choose him if they had the choice, which is why DeSantis, who had at least, what, 45 billionaires backing him at the time of his announcement, still is interesting to me because the people who would return us to this white straight male dominated Christian patriarchy, they still wield an incredibly extraordinary amount of power in this country. And I think that a terrifying amount of them would be just fine with some sort of top down authoritarian, provided they remained the privileged group on the top of that pyramid. And I think they saw DeSantis as their clearest shot at getting that result. So I think we should talk about what DeSantis, who's, you know, single handedly turning Florida into his own personal dictatorship, Represents in today's political climate, and probably what you call weaponized nostalgia, and how he uses that to wield that power.
0: Yeah, so I think um, I think the political project DeSantis is pursuing, DeSantism, if we want to call it that, is in many respects a kind of Trumpism without Trump. I think, in general, um, under DeSantis leadership, Florida has been at the forefront of the reactionary attempts to roll back the post-1960s rights revolution, mobilized the state against all kinds of dissent from a white nationalist understanding of America. I mean, as as governor of Florida, um, DeSantis has spearheaded the right-wing attempt to roll back civil liberties for vulnerable groups. No one has moved more aggressively to curtail uh, freedom of speech and academic freedom. And he has mobilized the coercive powers of the state against those he identifies as the enemy. And that includes private businesses like Disney. Um, I think in many ways, DeSantis embodies Trumpism as a political project and, and promise. He is all in on mobilizing again the, the the power of the state for the purpose of imposing a reactionary white nationalist order on the country and and on punishing those who dared to deviate from that, punishing. OC he defines as his enemies, his political project seems entirely fueled by white reactionary uh, social and cultural grievances, strongly opposed to multiracial, pluralistic democracy. And so, you know, in that sense, I think DeSantis should serve as a reminder that the problem we are facing, when I say we, I mean those of us in this sort of pro-democracy camp, it goes well beyond Trump. It should be a reminder of the extent and the and the depths of the GOP's radicalization of the sort of long-standing anti-democratic tendencies and impulses on the right. Trump's rise itself was a manifestation of that. It was not the cause of the anti-democratic radicalization of the right. And I think, you know, while it is imperative to make sure Trump does not return to the White House, we do not <laughs> want Trump back in the White House. The problem won't be solved once Trump is out of the way, right? I think that is whenever you talk about dissentus that is what you what we need to grapple with right the the case against dissentus cannot be a case for trump right but the case against trump can also not be a case for dissentus because again dissentism i don't think it's necessarily all that helpful to get into like Is DeSantis better or worse than Trump? Is he maybe more dangerous than Trump? Let's just look. I reject that sort of framing because that suggests a world in which we have to make a choice. We have to go either, you have to be either for Trump or for DeSantis. I'm staunchly opposed to both of them. Um, And I think DeSantis, again, he is a reminder that whatever is happening on the right and this sort of anti-democratic radicalization, it's not Trump's fault. It's not Trump's doing. He is himself a manifestation of that. And DeSantis is another manifestation of that. And so the problem goes well beyond Trump.
1: Right. I mean, you recently sat on a panel for the annual meeting of the Society of Historians and of the early American Republic. And the panel's goal, as I understand it, was to reflect on the uses and abuses of history and political discourse. And I think Ron's books were part of that discussion. Not only what could be learned from reading them, but how those works fit into what is the current state of the American right. And you read the two books, Courage to be Free, which came out this year, and The Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, which was released in 2011. You wrote all about it in your Substack, Democracy Americana, which people should absolutely subscribe to. It's fantastic. What are some of the things you shared with that audience that that we should know about?
0: So this first book, the DeSantis wrote, Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, by the way, the title, clearly a diss against Obama, right? That is clearly... <laughs> um, that it's that that's intentional right it it came out in 2011 and absolutely no one cared um you can't even say that this is like a forgotten book because no one ever knew it existed in the first place it was basically self-published with the help of a tiny local publisher in jacksonville florida right it is not a good book and it's not a pleasure to read but (laughs) it is interesting it is interesting as a manifestation of that tea party moment in Republican politics, and then as a window into the ways in which reactionaries will use and abuse history, but also as kind of a stepping stone for exploring the the recent sort of radicalization of the right, right? So how does DeSantis get from this first book in 2011 to where he is now, basically, right? So the, that book, I mean, since I have to assume that absolutely no one has read it, um, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain, like almost no one in your audience has, has read this book because again, almost no one, it's even hard. To I would put money now. down
1: that no one in my audience picked up dreams from the founding fathers by Ron DeSantis in 2011. I would, I would and put please, money on
0: that bet. Yeah. And, and please don't right. It's like <laughs> 350 pages. It's long. I spent. You read it. So we didn't have to.
1: Thank you. Yes, Thomas. And
0: I, I just wrote like 4,000 words on it on, on, in my newsletter. So if you want like this super extended version of this, please. Um, But do yourself a favor, don't don't read this book. But anyway, so the sole mission of this book, right? It, It is an attack on Barack Obama and his, quote unquote, progressive allies, as DeSantis calls them, for supposedly pursuing a political project that is fundamentally at odds with the founders' vision for America, violating the principles that supposedly animated the framers. He, he is He's uh, very focused on uh, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and George Washington uh, in, in particular. So he, ta- he talks about these people who are all about small government. Governmental restraint, right, to guarantee individual liberty and freedom, to keep the state out of people's private lives, and to make sure it doesn't meddle with private businesses. At this point, right, everyone in the audience should be like, "Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, right?" Because that's <laughs> clearly not what um, DeSantis is doing, right? um And that's 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 where it gets interesting to me. So DeSantis calls himself a constitutional conservative in this book from 2011, right? So again, that that by his definition, is someone who believes in restraining government, keeping the government out of people's private lives and out of private business. And so if we take this, right, if we take this kind of constitutional conservatism from this 2011 book at face value, which probably we shouldn't, but let's do for a second, right? We should expect the founders and 2011 Ron DeSantis to have a big problem with 2023 Ron DeSantis, right? Because again, as governor of Florida, he is spearheading this right-wing uh, attempt to, well, mobilize the state, um, um, in, intervene in people people's private lives. And he's he's feuding with private business like, like Disney, right? And this is, again, what I find interesting, this path, right? Because dissenters today would still claim, hey, I am still a constitutional conservative, right? Only apparently now that means mobilizing the state and sort of, uh, an authoritarian version of the state that um, that controls all aspects of people's private lives in complete contrast to what he was claiming in 2011. And I think what I was trying to do at this conference and, and now in my newsletter is to sort of explain how these people, if they look in the mirror, right? How do they justify this trajectory, right? And and and, and how do they just keep claiming to be constitutional conservatives all about the founders' vision for America, And all that. if, If they have arrived at this point where all of a sudden there's nothing left of governmental restraint and individual liberty, and it's all about, you know, just forcing people to live exactly the way you want them to live.
1: Yeah, I think this is why so many of us have trouble with what the Republican Party is doing right now. It's the about face, right? Which has kind of been this ongoing. Theme with my guests over the podcast this month the trajectory that the right took from this kind of theoretical idea of small government and free market and personal freedom to using the government to limit individual liberties and private and, you know, punish private public businesses and prioritize certain American rights over others' American rights. And it's also this complete embracing of the culture wars against anything the right perceives as woke and using the power of the state and the power of the courts to roll back all the progress we've made over the past hundred years towards multiculturalism, towards pluralism, towards general fairness for the people of America. And I think it's hard for us to take people like DeSantis and others like the six majority voices on the Supreme Court seriously when they say, as you said, that they're constitutional conservatives. You know, they're they're simply relying on the wisdom of the framers, right? When they're clearly right wing ideologues who have absolutely turned the idea of liberty and justice on its ear for their own power.
0: Here's, here's where that that 2011 book does sort of provide some interesting kind of insights or ideas how to yeah. h- how to make sense of what's been happening there. Right? Yes, please. So, Again, so in this 2011 book, right, so he, he he constantly invokes the founding to justify his politics and his attacks on Obama. And if you sort of contrast that with how the reactionary right invokes the founding today in order to justify the kind of authoritarians of anti left, anti woke politics that DeSantis is championing as governor, it's really interesting. So I looked at to compare to uh, 2011 dissentist book right. I, I looked at the 1776 report that Trump's bizarre 1776 commission presented uh, a few days before Joe Biden took office, and then he he immediately disbanded this weird commission. <laughs> I mean, maybe some of people will remember this. So this was an advisory committee that then President Trump uh, established in the fall of 2020 to restore "quote unquote" patriotic education, right? So and and this commission then released this report, and it was really shaped by. Uh, sort of reactionary political theorists and wannabe intellectuals who come from a very specific school of thought on the right. They're usually called West Coast Straussians. Um, their institutional home is the Claremont Institute in California. This, I think, people will have heard will have heard that name before because that's where John Eastman, if, if you remember that guy, the, the constitutional lawyer who was a, a key part of Trump's January six scheme, right? That was the guy who said, "Hey, Mike Pence can just not certify the election." Um, That's where that guy comes from right so these are really the most pro-trump people in the sort of right-wing reactionary intellectual sphere right and these people are completely obsessed with what they call the natural order or natural laws or sort of eternal morals and laws right and they believe right they believe that what makes america good is the fact that these natural laws the natural order these eternal morals were enshrined by the founders into sort of the the founding documents of this country, right? And they believe that this manifests in traditional hierarchies of race, gender, religion, and wealth. And for them, the devil is progressivism, right? Because they see everything, quote-unquote, leftist, right, as an attack on the natural order, on those laws of nature. They see progressivism as sort of seeking to overcome those uh, traditional hierarchies and thereby going against the natural order, right? And again, for them, the most radical form of progressivism is the woke leftism, right? Or left-wing identity politics. Now, if you take it back to uh, 2023, DeSantis, and his, his latest book, The Courage to Be Three, that came out early this year. I'm not saying DeSantis necessarily cares about sort of uh, you know, this sort of long reactionary intellectual tradition of West Coast Straussian thought. I'm not saying he's into that. He's clearly not. He doesn't <laughs> care. But what is interesting and why it helps to look at those people from the 1776 commission is Decentes is justifying his current action, uh, actions in exactly... same way as these people on the commission right so again he describes his enemy as he calls it the quote-unquote ruling elite which is basically people like you and me who adhere to the woke leftist ideology it has nothing to do with wealth or actual political power right like clarence thomas he's adamant in the book clarence thomas not ruling elite you and me absolutely ruling elite right (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's very funny And, and then he says and then he says look these, this woke ruling elite is in charge of all the major institutions in American life the media, big tech, education, and that enable, enables them to impose their radically un American ideology on the country. And then he, look, and basically what he's saying is under these circumstances, right, the type of constitutional conservatism that he claimed to be following in the 2011 book, right, that at least on the surface, right, preached governmental restraint. That no longer applies because that is for a healthy society that still respects the laws of nature. But now, as the natural order is supposedly right uh, um, under assault from the left and has almost been brought down by the woke ruling elite, constitutional conservatism calls for something very different. It calls for a mobilization of the coercive powers of the state, which again, in this interpretation, in the DeSantis interpretation, and in the interpretation of these West Coast Straussians and all these like reactionary intellectuals, in this interpretation, that is necessary now to defend a particular kind of freedom, the freedom to live in accordance with the natural order and make everyone else also live in accordance with that natural order, impose it on the entire country. I think that really captures how people on the right give themselves permission to always escalate, always radicalize, never moderate, never compromise, right? We are the defenders of the natural order. We are the defenders of the laws of nature. And those laws of nature are under assault. And if that is the case, right, then just standing back and like being restrained and keeping government out of like people's lives, no longer good enough. That's for a healthy society. We're no longer in a healthy society. We're now in a like woke, uh, leftist dominated society. And under those circumstances, you mobilize the authoritarian power of the state. And I think that is that really captures the recent trajectory of the right.
1: Woof. That's it's brutal. not great, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's brutal. I mean, you know, justification of terrible behavior has always been done by authoritarians, right? We had to do this because of these people. We had to do this because we were under attack. That's why we're set up in an existential threat situation where, you know, the left and the Democrats are always considered evil and monsters and they can paint us with words like pedophile because then it can justify anything that they do because they're the protectors. In this case, you're saying the protectors of the natural order. But I also will say like, you mentioned the media in there and because I'm kind of obsessed with your writing, I, I, I read a lot of your stuff. You had a particularly interesting response to the shenanigans of Chris Licht time at CNN. You wrote a number of pieces on how CNN justified their, say, disastrous Trump town hall. But you also addressed the Atlantic article that published what turned out to be a scathing profile of kind of an arrogant and a little out of his depth leader. You noted in that Atlantic profile on Licht how it highlighted his worldview, but also the worldview widely held among those who do dominate our civil institutions like our media and how we're shaped by this myth that there is this liberal echo chamber out there where we aren't really making strong and important points, but we're talking in circles to each other. And then this myth that Trump Speaks for this authentic American who is rightfully angry. So, will you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, um,
0: if if people remember, this was I think early May is is when that happened. This sort of yeah. Trump, the CNN Trump town hall, yeah. Um, early mid May, um, and I think for me, this whole thing really was revealing. It, it it in in many ways. And and if you remember, since since you asked about this, of echo chamber myth, right? So the day after. The, the town hall, Anderson Cooper on CNN came out and he said something about, oh, do you people think staying in your silo, is I think what he said, uh, and only listening to people you agree with is going to make that person, meaning Trump, go away. And I think this sort of cynical, you need to get out of your silo thing um, that's really indicative of this pervasive narrative of, of liberals in their echo chambers right and it's basically oh yeah okay so there's there's right wing echo chambers but it's as, as bad on on the left basically and look this doesn't just doesn't hold up empirically right i mean people who describe themselves as liberal or de- democratic voters consume and trust a much wider range of media sources compared to you know their republican counterparts there is no equivalent on the left to what's been happening on the right where no no one, no one on the conservative base trusts anything left of Fox News. And even Fox News is only trusted if and as long as it doesn't go against sort of the core tenets of, of MAGA orthodoxy. And yet you'll hear this all the time, right? Um, are blaming the echo chambers. If you don't want to acknowledge the substance of the political conflict, right, and and if you don't want to engage with the specifics of the political struggle over power and status and fundamentally incompatible visions of what the country should be, well, then you just bemoan echo chambers, right? The the echo chamber narrative, it's just, I think it's so attractive because it's, It prescribes an easy fix, right? If only people could communicate across the boundaries of their self-imposed information silos, we would all be good. That's just not the case. I think we, I say we, liberals broadly speaking, we're kind of often eager to adopt such a diagnosis. It actually gives us agency back because then we are the key actors in this story. We can simply decide to step out of our echo chamber and then that will immediately make a difference. But, you know, it's an easy way for people to demonstrate how supposedly above the fray they are. Oh, you people might be might be getting carried away by your tribal passions and your sort of echo chamber stuff. But look at me. Look how reasonable I am, how rational I am, how objective I am. I am above all that stuff, right? Which is what you get a lot of from journalists, right? Because that sort of performative centrism, um, it, it's, it's all neutrality theater. And it's still that's still immensely valuable as a currency in political journalism. But I think we should be very critical whenever someone starts talking about echo chambers, information silos, both sides being so, uh, or just talking to people they agree with. It's all again; it obscures rather than clarifies the actual conflict. This whole tribalism thing is nonsense. It 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 it, it prescribes nothing but completely vacuous sort of reaching out gospel. Reaching out is not going to change anything. That is not going to solve the problem.
1: Yeah, and you're of the opinion that we would be in a better place if these people in these positions of influence and power would just let go of this kind of simplistic notion of objectivity that they're just being, they're just you know asking questions and being clear, right? Well, look, <laughs> there is um,
0: there is a specific mindset uh, and a kind of worldview among not just sort of these media executive because you mentioned Chris Licht, right, the former boss of CNN, but also amongst of the country's elite echelons in, in politics and in society and culture more generally. The defining traits really are a naive belief in their own objectivity and rationality and in, sort of in, in in their own being nonpartisan and above the fray and all that. And if if you look at what they're actually doing, people like Chris Licht are animated by, I've tried to call that status quo fundamentalism, um, which is not any less ideological than the... What they claim their enemies are doing, or the people they are criticizing are doing, it—it's it, really in in marked contrast to their self perception as sort of a reasonable. We're so look how reasonable we are. We're not tarnished by these irrationalities that supposedly pla- plague everyone else, right? I think these you know, these these status quo moderates, right? They believe. That's of the, the the political, social, and cultural change has just gone too far already. And they want to turn the clock back a little bit to a time before what I think they see as sort of the excesses of wokeism to when the, the privileged position of wealthy white elites, it's usually wealthy white people, um, was a little more secure, right? So, uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, someone like Chris Licht um, is like a MAGA Republican or something, right? But I do think his perspective on American politics is shaped by an underlying ideology that makes it more plausible to, to see the right as not that big of a threat, and the left as a radical, unreasonable, acutely dangerous threat. Right. And I think again, we could just have a much more fruitful discussion if Licht and people like him could just acknowledge that, you know, their outlook on the world isn't any less ideological and self-serving than what you know, the quote unquote, woke leftists, uh, they love to criticize do. And if they could just acknowledge it's not, they are not the defenders of like pure reason and truth and like all that, all that that nonsense. Their worldview is again, as self-serving and as as ideological as as anything else. And and then we could have an honest discussion over that. But, you know, as long as they're just claiming, hey, we over here, we're so objective and you guys are just um, irrational crazies
1: that's just not a basis for discussion. Right. These prominent members of the media, what you refer to, I think, smartly as the pundit class, clearly have an outsized influence on the public conversation. And, you know, we have to think that people like Crick Slick himself are functioning under this idea that they are somehow capable of superior judgment across a wide variety of fil- uh, you know fields. I mean, I was at an event when Anderson Cooper had said that thing the day before, like, you people need to get out of your silos. And I was at an event um, where he received an award in person, and the the reception in the room was decidedly chilly. Right? People were pissed off. Like, don't blame it on us. That your network is the one who blew it. Right? Plus, people like Anderson had the power and the money to stand strong and say, like, don't make me defend this debacle. Right? And he did it. He maligned us who criticized the network from his privileged position. And I think, as you point out, a lot of this prominence stems from the ideas that these people feel like they're just unbiased, that they're just these dispassionate truth-tellers working with the data, when all too often these people end up presenting the world to us through a filter of how they feel the world should be or how it best serves them. They can't help themselves. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think the the political discourse is significantly shaped by a whole industry of people, and most of them not coincidentally are white men, um, (laughs) not all of them, but most of them, who believe themselves to be beyond ideology, whose self-perception and claim to relevance really is built around the idea that they are you know, I've I've tried to call them the arbiters of pure reason. Um, this is what how they see themselves, right? And you know, you see them; they're prominent members of the pundit class. I don't know. Are we are we naming names on this on this program? Sure, sure, not? yeah. All right. So it's it's people like Matthew Iglesias or Jonathan Shade, right? So these people. Um, uh, so again, like very prominent members of the pundit class, also like leading, quote-unquote, objective data journalism gurus, um, media executives, they all have an outside influence on the public conversation. And these self-proclaimed arbiters of reason, they operate from the conviction that they are capable of superior judgment across a wide variety of fields, even in fields where they lack any discernible expertise. And I think they they all much... uh, Yes, that was a very... Or history. I mean, they all... Climate all of science. Them, yes. Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, during the pandemic, that became very... These people have absolutely no problem opining on anything related to like, Things viruses. Things they know very and, little about. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I mean, I, I obviously, you know, because I'm a historian, they, they also opine a lot on history. I'm like, this is completely detached from... It's nonsense, complete nonsense. But um, it's what is interesting about these people is that they're obviously there's obviously an audience for that, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't know who they are and they wouldn't make so much money. And they owe much of their prominent status to the idea that they are unbiased, dispassionate truth tellers, all about data and facts, and brave enough to give us the unvarnished truth in a sort of heroic effort against conventional wisdom and the dark forces of subjectivity. And so again, they feel capable and and they they feel entitled to offer a firm assessment on anything. When really, when you look at it, what they're really doing is they're just judging the world by whether or not it's in line with their own sensibilities. And and their sensibilities are entirely shaped by their status interests, Right. that is why, again, these people, what they're doing is status quo fundamentalism, dressed up as objective truth telling brave truth telling and it's again it's like i i have to say i find it i find it much easier to like deal with some right wing reactionary people at least you know they're going to be mostly honest about what they're all about they will tell you flat out democracy is bad we don't want democracy okay all right so i know i you know at least at least they're not pretending right whereas these people because they're off, they often see themselves as like the true liberals, um, it's a lot more, for me, at least, frustrating to engage with them because they're pretending to be something they're absolutely not.
1: Yeah. I mean, you point out in some of your writing that it's pretty striking how much energy these self-proclaimed centrists or moderates focus on the threat from the left which ultimately only puts them on a right-wing trajectory, that this entire mystique of the centrist white male elite is built on offering their judgment, which is better than, as we've said, the perceived bias of the left-wing activist judgment, but it ends up setting up the left as a group that's devolved into this woke mob or, as DeSantis put it, succumbed to the woke mind virus. And if you're talking about it like that, then you're not really a centrist, right? You're attacking the left from the right? And these people who claim to be moderates are the same people who seem to have a real problem emphasizing or embracing things like diversity and equity and inclusion. And it's not like they're having a problem with how DEI is being implemented or how it's being co-opted with co- by corporate interests, but with the entire idea of it in general. And in your writing, you smartly point out that since the most fundamental critique of the white male objectivity comes from the left wing... That's where these people who generally consider themselves moderate or arbiters of reason end up focusing their anger, right? It's the left that's questioning the status quo. So it's the left who ends up questioning their perception of their own supposed superior judgment. So when someone like Chris Licht was questioned with what he was thinking with the Trump town hall, he ended up lashing out at the questioners. So these people who see themselves as, as you say, arbiters of the truth end up refusing to engage in any sort of critical introspection, right? It's this group of people, the ones who consider themselves the defenders of truth, who keep doubling down. They end up ridiculing the justified left-wing critique as if it's irrational, right? As if it's just identity politics. They downplay the left's real fears of the dangers of the right-wing extremism, and they call us hysterical. They keep playing up the threat of the woke radicalism, because it's the woke radicals who are most likely to criticize them. And I find that fascinating. Did you know that your bed sheets can have more bacteria than a toilet seat? Well, they can. Which is why your bed can give you acne or allergies or a stuffy nose. And it's exactly why Miracle Made wanted to address this with a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding like sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent up to 99% of bacteria. Miracle made sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Plus, miracle sheets are just super comfortable and they feel as nice, if not nicer, than some of the bed sheets used in five star hotels. So stop sleeping in grossness and try Miracle today by going to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. Whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you'll save 40% off. And with the promo code politicsgirl, you'll get three free towels and an extra 20% off. That's a heck of a deal. And Miracle is so confident that you will love their products that they back them with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, they'll give you a full refund. And a big shout out to all the people who've been writing me and saying that they bought them and they love them. I'm so glad. So upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made today. Go to trymiracle.com politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your three free piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com politicsgirl. I'm so excited that Real Paper is now a sponsor of the Politics Girl podcast. Do you know that we cut down tens of thousands of trees every day just to supply America with toilet paper? Well, we do, and it's not like toilet paper can just be recycled or reused. So it's just going straight into our water system. Real paper, on the other hand, is made from 100% bamboo. So instead of impacting entire ecosystems of forests, they're making their toilet paper from a plant that can be harvested and regenerated incredibly fast. And real paper is the best kind of eco-friendly product because it doesn't feel like you're sacrificing something to help the earth. I was genuinely concerned that the idea of this product might be better than the actual product. And then we got our first delivery of real paper. As I said in a previous episode, I'm kind of a toilet paper snob. I like fancy toilet paper. So when I tried real paper, I was shocked it didn't feel like a downgrade. In fact, when you account for the environmental difference, it might actually be an upgrade. Real paper is shipped free to my door in plastic free packaging, and I can schedule a subscription so it comes exactly when I need it. So you don't have to worry about forgetting to buy it or quite frankly, carrying it home because everyone doesn't have a car and those packages are pretty cumbersome. Plus, Real Paper partnered with One Tree Planted. So every box of Real that you buy funds reforestation around the country. So while other toilet paper companies are cutting down trees, Real is actively helping to replant them. So give it a try for yourself. Head to realpaper.com slash politicsgirl. And if you sign up for a subscription using my code politicsgirl, you will automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash politicsgirl or enter the promo code politicsgirl to get 30% off plus free shipping. Make a change for good this year and switch to real paper. Real. It's paper for the planet.
0: There was a really revealing anecdote in that in that long Atlantic profile of of Chris Licht. Um, where, it was good. It was good. Yeah, it, yeah. Where um, it, it was about how Chris Licht, again, to nobody's surprise, is is not a big fan of sort of you know DEI uh, uh, efforts and so sort of diversity, equity, inclusion. But again, his critique was not that DEI is being implemented in, in potentially unhelpful ways, which it often is, or it's co-opted by corporate interests, which it always is, often is, I shouldn't say always, but often is. Yeah. His skepticism was way more profound, right? He was just flat out not willing to acknowledge the centrality of racial and gender identities and, and of, how, sort of how intersecting identities shape the individual's status in society and, and perspective on the world. Because that would undermine the core claim on which his own self-perception and sort of non-ideological reason, supposed reason, is is predicated, right? He's he's claiming, no, 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 I'm not shaped, my worldview is not shaped by me being a man, a white man. So I'm rejecting this, right? I'm 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 objective. So I'm rejecting this idea that all our perspectives on the world are inevitably shaped by these factors, right? So he's rejecting that, right? But the the, the most fundamental critique of this idea of sort of white male objectivity comes from left wing identity politics, right? Because the, the the central claim is no, everything is identity politics, right? There is no. There's no politics that is not identity politics, right? Only we don't call it that as long as it's just identity politics in the interests of sort of white men, then we just call it politics, right? But if it's like <laughs> if it's if it's if it's like in the interests of someone else, then all of a sudden of it's of women like, oh, or or yes, the Black Lives Matter movement or, or trans yes. people.
1: Yeah, then it's identity then politics. Then it's identity
0: politics, right? So mm-hmm. um and again, so he he they 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 reject that, and they they feel threatened by this idea of of identity politics. Um, and that is since that is being presented by the quote unquote woke radicals, right? Who are supposedly, in their understanding, unserious and irrational, right? This is where these people direct much of their anger, right? This is this is this is the direction in which they're always lashing out. And I think it's really it's a recurring theme in how these sort of quote-unquote centrist white male elites describe the world. They're, they're obsessed with pointing out the supposed fallacies of left-wing activism or left-wing advocacy. In the Chris Lick profile in The Atlantic, he, he, he talked about sort of, oh, this is just advocacy and we're not doing advocacy. Okay, man. Um, the entire mystique, right? The entire mystique is built on offering better judgment than those quote-unquote biased activists. And that puts them on a steady rightward trajectory because they're sharing the same enemy as the right, right? And again, like regardless of what happens, uh, instead of engaging in critical introspection ever, they always double down. They keep ridiculing the left-wing critique as irrational identity politics. They keep downplaying the warnings about um, the dangers of right-wing extremism as hysterical. And they keep playing up the threat of quote-unquote woke radicalism and the quote-unquote illiberal left. Um, and that's, that's what you get from these people. And again, like all while they continue to claim they're not conservatives, they're not right-wingers, they're the true liberals or the true moderates, right? But everything they ever do all day is lash out against the left.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think in Chris Lick's mind, he was the David in the David and Goliath story, right? And the giant posing the danger was the woke left who couldn't stop talking about danger rather than the extreme right, right? who was actually causing the danger because ultimately it was the left that was criticizing him and that made him feel bad, right? It wasn't fair that people were calling him a fascist right-winger when he was really just this unbiased you know, truth teller, right? And except he's an unbiased truth teller who's owned by a right-wing corporation that's owned by a right-wing billionaire who put the criminal ex-president who tried to overthrow democracy on primetime with an audience completely packed with his devotees, but criticizing him for that, totally unfair.
0: Yeah, I mean they always um they never want to acknowledge that they are acting from a position of strength or power or privilege, right? They always yeah. act as if they are they are just pushing back against orthodoxy. They are the ones pushing back against these powerful forces that are in charge. And that is, again, that is a diagnosis that puts them very close to what we talked about earlier, right? When Ronda Santis talks about, oh, there's the woke ruling class that is in charge of all the major institutions of American life, the media and tech and and education. And then you, you listen to these self-proclaimed moderates and, you know, they're also talking about how education is higher education certainly is completely in the hands of these woke radicals like me, I guess. And, and, and uh, and the media also. And, and, And so they have to push back, right? So they, they have to be the ones bravely telling, Nope, not fervor, right? So we're going to stop you right here. And it's 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 like you know, I I um <laughs> I'm reading. I was in a sort of semi-public, I guess, um, uh, uh, quarrel with 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 Jonathan Shade, who's one of the most, I mean, you know, one of the best-known columnists in the country. And he he writes these columns in in a one of the country's major magazines, and and he attacks me for being like supposedly part of an all-powerful woke elite. And I'm like, man, I'm just sitting here in my in my little office on my sort of uh, you know, fixed term contract that ends in two years and, and you are one of the most well-known people in the country. What are you talking about? Like why are you talking like you I am powerful and you are not? This is ridiculous. Um but that is part of the that is part of the sort of the self-perception, right? It's always um this sort of they are the ones who need to push back against the powers that be and these sort of overwhelming left-wing forces that are supposedly you know in charge of all the institutions of American life.
1: But then it ends up aligning these supposed centrist moderates with the extreme right wing. But you don't think it's so simple to call people like them conservatives because you think it's more interesting than that, right? Because I mean I'm curious how it all happens. I mean, someone like Chris Licht, he show ran Stephen Colbert's show for so many years. You know, so you wonder like, how do you go from this position to this completely antithetical position? But Mary, maybe it just ultimately comes from who's criticizing you and back to what you call status quo fundamentalism, these people that really, at the end of the day, their primary concern is to keep the status quo.
0: So this is a response I often get when I talk about or write about these, you know, centrists or self-proclaimed moderates. Um when I wrote that Chris Lick thing, people like some people were like, Hey, man, why why do you write 4,000 words instead of just saying Chris Licht is a conservative and a right-winger, and he always has been? And again, I think it's a little more interesting than that, right? So
1: Most things are.
0: Yeah, I mean, Chris Licht, right? So the former head of CNN, he was adamant that he was not a conservative, Mm -hmm. that that he would never put himself into that category. And while we shouldn't just take that at face value, it still matters. That sort of self-perception still matters. The fact that he has always considered himself to be maybe not liberal, but like moderate, right? That's probably his self-perception. That is important because it informs his assessment of what is happening on the left. And this is, I think, a dynamic that characterizes much of the self-proclaimed sort of reasonable centrist industrial complex. Um, If you are convinced to be just the right kind of reasonable and liberal and moderate, then experiencing reactionary impulses in yourself it creates a kind of intellectual and emotional dissonance and they often resolve that by declaring that which makes them uncomfortable they declare that radical and extreme right so telling yourself hey i'm a true liberal these people are radical woke activists that feels a lot better than having to tell yourself hey i always thought i was pretty liberal but I must say I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about these calls for equality and respect especially when they question my superior judgment and and social, social status. So you know that so most of these people opt So for I'm the not going to think about
1: it. I'm just going to claim these no. people questioning me are radicals.
0: Yeah that, that, but that's yeah. the thing, right? That's why <laughs> that's why it matters that these people are not conservatives and and don't consider themselves conservatives. They think of themselves as where I am is exactly the right kind of liberal and moderate, right? So if people attack me, they must be like radical, crazy activists, right? That that must be it, right? It can't be that maybe my position is, is maybe not quite what I believe it to be. Um, and so it, I think it's a sort of a combination of there's a performative element to it. There's sort of, there's sort of ideological centrism, but no, no matter what the mix is here between sort of strategic and ideological and psychological elements, the result is always the same. It's an aggress- increasingly aggressive stance against the woke left. Um, and it's ever more in line with reactionary politics. Again, all while these people are still clinging to the idea they are the true liberals who are defending true liberalism from the woke onslaught
1: which brings us back again to status quo fundamentalism right from an elite perspective i mean you pointed out yeah if if i am a white male and i have that privilege status quo is actually pretty rational right it makes sense yeah. to see yeah. the left as a bigger threat to your status yeah. than the right because the right has no plans to take white male privilege from you right other people do uh, but not not taking it from you you know like the right might take privilege from other people trans people women you know uh, the black community but they're not going to take it from the white males. so in some ways yeah. you're saying it's kind of practical right that it's true that there's an agenda that seeks to make America more fair It's been going on since the New Deal and it continued with workers rights and women's rights and gay rights and the right does want to return us you know, to some sort of a restricted white male patriarchal democracy, right? Or at least one that would leave existing hierarchies largely in place. That functioning in a kind of multicultural pluralistic society is a losing proposition for people who've always been at the top. So it just makes sense rationally to gravitate towards those who wouldn't take your power.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, like I, I think from an elite perspective and especially from the perspective of a white male elite, this kind of status quo fundamentalism is very rational. It makes yeah. it makes sense to regard the left, quote unquote left, as a bigger immediate status threat than the right, right? Because an, an agenda seeking to move America from being the sort of restricted kind of democracy it, it, it has been for the past 50, 60, 70 years that left existing hierarchies largely intact to a functioning, egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. Yeah, yeah no, that, that will mean for people like me, frankly, right, for people like me who, who look like me, I'm, I'm a white cis man, um, that, is, that will come with a relative loss in status right it doesn't mean that anyone's going to take away my money or like my house or whatever yeah it's not a zero
1: sum game like they said up but relatively to be. Yeah.
0: speaking relatively speaking right it still means that people who look like me used to were used to being in a sort of privileged position uh, compared to other sort of groups in society and in a truly functioning multiracial pluralistic democracy we would expect that no longer to be the case. So relatively speaking, right, I would be in status terms worse off than before. And and by the way, that also, I think that sort of perspective, if if you think about it, if you think about status, right, and and from what status position are people looking at the political conflict, it also explains a lot about how even Democrats and Democratic politicians and Democratic voters Look at sort of the institutions of American life, something like the Supreme Court. Like when you think about why is it so hard for you know certain Democratic politicians, uh, political leaders, um, to to accept that what the Supreme Court is and and that it's not so sort they of nonpartisan you know institution um, that it, it it actually has become the spearhead of sort of the, the reactionary assault on. On sort of the kind of social and and and, um and racial and cultural progress that that we've made over the past century or so. Why is that so hard to accept? Well, because if you are at the top or near the top in in society, then the institutions have worked for you, right? The 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 system has worked for you. So you have a, a certain there's a certain bias there to to see the institutions and to accept the system as working because it has. In a very real sense, worked for you. So you have to put in a lot of work, right? To you have to actively work on overcoming that sort of pro-institution, pro-system bias. Yeah, to your understand, own personal
1: bias, if you happen yes. to be someone who who has benefited from that, a hundred percent. Yes.
0: Yeah, and then look, I live in the I live in sort of the the northwest of of Washington D.C. It's an entirely white neighborhood, basically. Everyone is wealthy and 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 it's all it's all academics, and um, you can feel that here, right? Like, I would I would think that most people here are not voting for Trump, but they also the stuff that I talk about all day they find that rather radical because the stuff that I talk about ultimately, right, is sort of advocating for actual sort of change in the direction of multiracial, pluralistic social democracy. And again, if if the system has worked for you so far, and clearly the system has worked because otherwise these people wouldn't live here in these fancy, beautiful houses, right? This kind of stuff, this kind of sort of critique of the system, the, the calls for um, sort of, you know, changing the system that makes you feel uncomfortable and I, by the way I, I i don't want to mock that that, no, I, that it makes nothing, sense it makes sense it, it makes sense I and mean, we we should acknowledge that and we need to we need to grapple with that and and talk about that but it is again it is something that whenever you whenever you whenever there's like a another like study or survey coming out that i don't know like there's still a sizable percentage of self-proclaimed liberals who think John Roberts is awesome like the only way to make sense of that is to understand well there is a bias towards being pro institutions and pro system if the institutions and the system have so far worked for you very well
1: and this idea that maybe change has already gone too far right like you might not want to turn the clock back but like have you know can we just stay right here where we are i mean there's even those who are arguing right now to remove the t from the LGBTQ community. Like the T was just a bridge too far. It was just too much, too woke. Like we're fine with equity, but like, let's not get crazy. Maybe this is a problem. That kind of reactionary um, behavior from people that would otherwise consider themselves moderate or liberal is interesting because it's not that people are gonna take things from you. It's just that if we offer the same things to everyone, you might not be in such a privileged position. And that's a hard thing to, to sort of agree to. People naturally want to protect what they have. But I would always say, you know, like when people are like, well, everything's working just fine. And I'm like, is it though? I mean, look around, right? The world is a freaking mess, right? And it's the same elites that are in charge that made it that way. And so maybe we have to start doing things differently and we're going to have to sort of like ease up on our grip. And I say this as a white woman from a privileged position who's raising a white straight cis man, you know, I want my son to do really well in life, but like maybe the world doesn't only belong to him.
0: You mentioned, I think early on in our conversation, you mentioned the, the, the term weaponized nostalgia. And I think this is, this is, this is what it often comes down to for me, because there is. What you described there, just, right, among the feeling among – we're not talking about MAGA people. We're not talking about, like, proper right-wingers and proper reactionists. We're talking about people who consider themselves to be on the center, um, moderates, center-left, center-right, but deeply into the the, the 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 liberal camp, right? There is right. – because of all the change that this country has undergone over the the past few decades, and and it has undergone a tremendous amount of social, cultural, political, and demographic—probably most most importantly, demographic—change that makes people uncomfortable. And a and in an almost natural reaction to that is nostalgia, right? A kind of nostalgia for the before times, the the golden age in. Recent American history, although that probably never, never actually existed, but there for most is, of us, it
1: didn't. But yes, no, there is an age that people think of for sure. Yeah,
0: and and so I think much of the, much of the the mainstream political discourse is shaped by nostalgia, and the right, the right understands that, and they can they understand they can latch onto that in order to make their political project, which is one of turning the clock back, right, of of rolling back social and political progress of the past century or so. To make that more attractive to people who probably don't consider themselves conservatives and certainly not reactionaries, and they don't want to vote for Donald Trump, but if you can get them on the nostalgia front, right, that all of a sudden, right, it it makes the 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 right wing political project seem way more attractive. You see this, um, you see the influence of nostalgia in uh, in our political discourse very clearly in two of the sort of central widely accepted diagnoses of our time, which are both grounded in, in a sort of sense of nostalgia. One is the the polarization narrative, um, and the other is the cancel culture idea.
1: Yeah, like we've become um, too polarized, and now yes. cancel culture is ruining everything. Yeah, yeah, that's all based in nostalgia. It used to be better. It used to be simpler. Yes. We never used to fight yes. about this. If only we could have it like that again.
0: That's exactly right. It, it's all based, based in this idea that, you know, America is on a dangerous path away from this golden era of either sort of consensus and bipartisanship or in golden, golden era of free speech or whatever, it, I can't just sit here as a historian and say, but wait a minute, that never actually existed. Well, that's not how nostalgia works, right? It's not, that's not, it's not based in like empirical history. This sense of nostalgia is it's prevalent on the center and again, deep into the liberal camp. And in a weaponized form, it provides, I think, an important vehicle uh, to transport reactionary ideas into the mainstream and, and make the reactionary project a lot more palatable, um, and I think that helps explain why many self-proclaimed moderates ultimately decide to, you know, legitimize uh, so, and support the right-wing political project, even though, again, maybe of them, many of them will be, you know, not fans of Trumpism, not fans of Trump. But but if you can weaponize that sense of nostalgia, which again, the right always tries to do. That becomes an extremely potent tool. It, it sort of it amplifies, it builds on these widespread anxieties regarding the fundamental social and cultural changes that America has been undergoing over the past few decades. And again, that is just—it's a powerful part of the human condition, um, and it can easily become a kind of filter through which everything, every political, social, and cultural information is absorbed. And if again, if a political movement offers to bring back what has supposedly been lost and, and return us to this sort of golden era, then that can be hard to resist, right? And I think so That that is, I think the challenge for all of us is sort of resisting that urge of the sort of the allure of nostalgia and, and be a little more clear-eyed about what that past really was and, and why it was really not that golden unless, unless we're talking solely about white men, then, then maybe, but, but not for everyone else. And so, so that is really, again, I think something the right is, is, is very good at is sort of weaponizing that sense of nostalgia and, and that but provides, liberals fall prey to it too. Yes. Oh, I, no, that, that, that's what I mean. Right. So yeah. the, 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 it's people on the center moderates, and even again, deeply into the liberal camp who, would sort of never consider themselves conservatives or like Trump voters or whatever. But all of a sudden, right, the right comes with this, oh, but don't you agree that wokeism has gone too far and all this trans stuff and it's all going way too far? And all of a sudden you have these columnists, self-proclaimed liberal columnists in writing for major major newspapers, Talking about, yeah, you know, there's something to this. There really is like the woke danger and and, and whatever. So, yeah, we, we need to resist that. And it, it can be hard, but, but I think we need to make sort of a concerted effort to, to resist any kind of politics grounded in nostalgia.
1: All we need to think about is those old signs and windows that say Christians only, or Irish need not apply, or no dogs, Negroes, or Mexicans, right? I saw a commercial from the 1960s for Folgers Instant Coffee recently, where the wife's entire existence was based around making a proper cup of coffee for her husband, and her husband was scolding her in this commercial because the girls at work could do it, and she couldn't, and I was like, yeah. Wow. I mean, the clothes might've been beautiful back then and owning a house on one person's salary sounds great, but like, I sure as hell don't want to live in that world.
0: No, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, (laughs) it's not a winner for again, anyone who wasn't a white, straight,
1: rich Christian man.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Right. But, but that's, again, that's what, I mean, brings us back to, you know, early on, we talked about sort of the right wing idea of the natural order and, and these sort of how the, supposedly the natural order manifests in these traditional hierarchies of race and gender and religion and wealth. And that's exactly, you know, that's exactly what they want, right? They, they want to return us to this place where supposedly, right, society was still in accordance with this natural order as it manifested in, you know, again, white Christian men at the top and everyone else has to sort of accept their place and shut up about it that's that's the kind of vision right that they
1: want to return the country to well i'm not going <laughs> as always thomas i want to thank you for joining us today your insight and your way of looking at this country and our democracy is so helpful it's so poignant i love what you do i hope people will subscribe to both uh, your podcast and your Substack. um where can people find your work if they want to keep following what you're doing so uh,
0: the home base for all my public work is is my newsletter on Substack. It's called Democracy Americana. That's where you get the sort of long form version of everything I said here today. Um, I do have a podcast. It's called Is This Democracy available wherever you get your podcast fix. And I am um, T Zimmer underscore History on social media. Although social media is not quite as much fun as it maybe used to be, but I, I am still, I am still active on social media. Yeah.
1: Wonderful. Well, thanks for coming. And I know I'll end up having you back again, but until then enjoy your summer.
0: Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
1: So that was Thomas Zimmer reminding us that the problems we're facing go well beyond Trump. Our problems won't be solved when Trump isn't in the picture. There are still a certain amount of people both on the left and the right that long for a mythologized version of a golden America. And it's so much easier to accuse the left of going too far than it is to realize that you might be uncomfortable with how far we've come, that those who run our media and our governments might be by nature reticent to change the status quo. But if we want to succeed as a country, it's time for the status quo to change. I want to thank Thomas for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.